scriptures and turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, as you turn there, uh, it just struck me as we were saying the Apostles' Creed that he sits at the right hand of God the Father. I'm sure you know this, but uh, sitting is the posture of authority in scripture. If you remember in uh, Luke chapter 4 when Jesus started his ministry, he read from the scroll of Isaiah and then sat down and started to preach. Sitting is the, is the posture of authority. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. Praise God. We're going to be looking at uh, verses 8 through 22 this morning. As Americans... When we think of various people in our history, our short American history, uh, certain things just pop into mind. Like, for example, if I were to say George Washington, what are some of the things that would pop into your mind? Maybe, Maybe humility, maybe honesty, right? He didn't chop down the cherry tree, after all. If I said Benedict Arnold, what would come to mind? Treachery, right? Maybe a little more difficult one, uh, Clara Barton. Maybe mercy, yeah, love for another. How about Teddy Roosevelt? <laughs> okay. How about toughness? <laughs> what about General Patton? Well, when the Jews thought of Abraham, you know what came to their mind? Righteousness by works. It's generally what would come to mind when a Jew thought of Abraham. John MacArthur wrote, The Jews believed that God looked around the earth and finally found an outstanding righteous man, Abraham who because of his goodness was selected to be the father of their chosen race. That's collectively what they thought. But from the rest of scripture, and certainly if you spend any time here as, as I preach through Genesis, you saw that, that that wasn't true. That's simply not true. God chooses to save not because of, but in spite of, right? And so we read in Romans 5, Verse 8, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We read a couple of verses further in chapter 5. While we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to God through his death. And again in chapter 5 in Romans, we read, while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. So it's no wonder that in the New Testament, so much time, so much ink, if you will, is, is, is used in correcting the view of Abraham, debunking that it was because he was strong or good or outstanding. So Paul in Romans 4 uses Abraham as his uh, example, prime example of justification by faith alone, right? Not by good works. Stephen, in his speech in Acts 7, uses Abraham as his first example in trusting in God and not himself. And here in Hebrews, Abraham and his family are used as the example of 
not living by your wits or depending on your goodness, but, but living by faith. And so as we take our scriptures this morning and look at verse 8 in chapter 11 and following, we'll read about Abraham and the patriarchs and their faith. God's word says, starting in verse 8, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place where he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand on the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he's prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was, in fact, of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac, your offspring shall be named. He considered that God was even able to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of his sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. And by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Father God, we ask you to bless us with your word this morning. Spirit, use me as your vessel to speak to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. So it's very helpful many times to have a framework uh, of a chapter. And chapter 11 can be divided this way, and I think it's very helpful. Verses 1 and 2 is the definition of faith, right? We looked at that several weeks ago. And then verses 3 through 7, he begins to give examples of faith. And and in verses 3 through 7, the author, I think, has in mind Genesis chapters 1 through 3. Um, 1 through 11, I'm sorry. 1 through 11, because that's where those, those people are found in Genesis. And then in our text today, he's really thinking about the rest of Genesis, chapter 12 through 50, with Abraham and the patriarchs. Next week, Lord willing, or the week after, we'll get to uh, verses 23 through 31, where that faith will be exemplified through the Exodus, through Moses. And then 
towards the end of of the chapter in verses 32 through 38, we have really just a distillation of the rest of Scripture and how faith is, is exemplified in various people and events there. So we have that as the framework of chapter 11, and we're really looking at these verses, 8 through 22, which are really the the historical parts of Genesis, chapters 12 through 50. And during our time in this chapter so far, we've looked at what faith looks like, what it looks like when it's actually lived out, and we're learning lessons of what that looks like and what, how we can apply that to our lives. And through Abel, back in verse 3, we learn that faith accepts God's terms. Through Enoch, we learn that faith walks with God, walks with God on the same path, at the same pace, to the same place. And through Noah, we learn that faith works. There's a working aspect to faith. What comes out of faith are good works. It is we're saved by faith alone, but a saving faith is never alone. It's always accompanied by works. And in our text today, we're going to mine a few more lessons about what faith looks like lived out through Abraham and the patriarchs. And what we see immediately is faith obeys. That's the first thing we see is faith obeys. That's obvious from the very first verse that we read this morning. By faith, Abraham obeyed, right? Right out of the gates. Obedience is the, the hallmark of a true faith. Obedience is the hallmark of a true faith. A.W. Tozer writes, The Bible recognizes no faith that does not lead to obedience, nor does it recognize any obedience that does not spring from faith. They're two sides of the same coin, he writes. J.C. Ryle says obedience is the only reality. It is faith visible. Faith acting. Faith manifest. And F.F. Bruce puts it succinctly, obedience is the outward evidence of an inward faith. You cannot pull those two apart. A true faith is evident in that it works. It is obedient. To have faith is to be obedient. And through Abraham, we see this obedience I think in three ways. We see this obedience in three ways. Faithful obedience, first of all, is immediate. Faithful obedience is immediate. To have faith is to react to God's commands, to do God's commands. We see that in verse 8. If you look at our text together, it says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. By faith, he obeyed when he was called. We read that sometimes and think, well, you know, God called him. And then weeks, you know, he thought about it. Or maybe months, right? Or maybe even sometimes we go, well, you know, maybe a couple years later he obeyed. But actually the Greek verbal construction there doesn't allow that. You You can easily translate this verb, by faith, Abraham obeyed. While he was being called, when he was being called. So the meaning there is he began to pack as soon as God called him. 
It was immediate. Abraham obeyed almost instantly. There's a story about Neil Martin. He's a member of the British Parliament who was once giving a a tour of, of Parliament to some people. And during the visit, he happened to pass by Lord Hailsham, who was the Lord Chancellor of Parliament at the time, and he was dressed up in all his regalia. And Hailsham recognized Martin, and as the group passed, he turned around and he cried out, Neil! And instantly, all the people went down to their knees. That's how Abraham responded to God's call. It was instant. And that's how we're called to respond to God when he, when he commands us to do something, when we read in his word his commands. Big or small. My mind uh, wandered this week to um, his command to forgive and to be... Uh, first to forgive in Matthew, you know, it says there was a, a man who was, had, was at the altar and, and he realized that a brother had something against him. He left and he went and he sought forgiveness. That's not an easy thing to do when you're in the emotion of unforgiveness, is it? It's not an easy thing to do to, to accept somebody's forgiveness when you're in the emotion of unforgiveness, when you've been hurt. I had an opportunity this week to apologize to my wife. You know, I was next door and I just, I was gruff and harsh and I didn't want to. But I got up and thank God Kay Woody was outside and she gave me a flower. And I went next door and I apologized. But we're to be immediate like that in all areas. We also see through Abraham not only faithful obedience being immediate, but faithful obedience doesn't require all the details, does it? It doesn't require all the details. Look at verse 8 again. It says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he went, when he was called to go to a place where he was to receive as an inheritance. And then second half, And he went out not knowing where... He was going. Stuart Oliott in his commentary writes, The invisible God was so real to Abraham and his words so sure that Abraham did not hesitate to obey. He left what others called certainties for uncertainties. I like how he puts that. I'm the kind of person that loves to have all the information before I make a decision. I love having all my ducks in a row. You know, the English language is is full of these idioms that talk about having, being prepared, having all the details before making a decision. I was just thinking of them this week. We want to have all our ducks in a row. We want to know the lay of the land, right? We want to map it out. We want a game plan. What's the attack plan? What's, give me the big picture. All these things that tell me the details, okay, and, and then I'll proceed. Many of us have to know all the facts before moving forward. 
And quite frankly, that's, that's the growth curve, one of the growth curves that the Lord has me on currently. Because th- this is me. You know, I'm a, I'm a calculated risk taker. I, I, and I think that I'm being kind to myself, right? I'm a calculated risk taker. But having faith many times meaning, means obeying without knowing all the details. I, mean, I think of, of Abraham again in, in Genesis 22. Talk about immediate response to God's commands when he calls Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, right? He obeyed immediately. It says the very next day he, he started off, but he didn't know all the details. He was just trusting God. Abraham, we see so many times, left the certainties for the uncertainties. But I think we also see through Abraham that faithful obedience also doesn't need incentives. I think we see that here, maybe front and center. I don't know about you, but I kind of dislike some of the trite Christian sayings we have. Like, um, it really is like sandpaper or nails on, uh, on chalkboard for when I hear, I'm going to ask the big man upstairs. I go, oof. You know, outside I might be going, hmm, but inside I'm going, oof. Or when someone dies and they say God needed another angel in heaven. You know, it's like, uh, I know what you mean, but. Or when you do something good. And I don't know if you've heard this one. I'm, I'm throwing lumber up into heaven. Meaning that through our obedience, we're building our mansion up there. That we're storing up for ourselves something in the future by, by doing something good down here, right? It's kind of an incentivized obedience. F.F. Bruce insightfully points out Abraham's timeline. Do you remember Abraham's timeline? It says here, Abraham did not know where he was going. He didn't even know about Canaan when he left. The land was not promised to him until he came back from Egypt with Lot in chapter 15, right? The divine bidding, he writes, was sufficient for him. Thus, the promise of inheritance was not the incentive for obedience. It was the reward of obedience. He was totally unincentivized to go. I think that that's really penetrating and convicting for me. There was no incentive to obey. Abraham left Ur. So many times we look for incentives, don't we? You know, why am I going what what's in it for me? Why am I going to do this? One of the strangest incentives occurred in the 19th century when Samuel Pinsall started insuring merchant ships. The insurance money that owners got from ships that sank was so great and so easy that it incentivized the owners of those ships to overload their ships so that they would sink. This became common practice so that they could get the insurance money. And those ships became known as these heavy laden ships became known by the seamen as coffin ships. In 1873, Pinsall spearheaded an act in Parliament called the Merchant Shipping Act, 
which required all ships to have a line painted around their hull. From then on and to this day, vessels had to display the Pimsoll mark. You see it today. A load line painted clearly on the hull showing how deep they could safely be loaded. Now, whether we say it or not, many times we as Christians are like those ship owners looking for the incentive to do something. What's my incentive for this obedience? What, what am I going to get if I obey? We almost ask automatically what's in it for me. Whether it's change in behavior or attitude or a call on your life or a call on your wallet. What's my incentive for doing this? What's on the other side for thee? Do you know what God's pimsoll mark is? It's found in Matthew chapter 6. You know it. I'll read it for you. Jesus said this when he taught, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. For if you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, Do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your right hand know what your left hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father, who sees what is done in secret, Will reward, will reward you. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is not teaching anonymous giving here. He's not teaching us to give and then be secretive about it. He's actually getting at something much deeper. He's teaching that faithful obedience does not even think in terms of reward. That's harder doesn't even consider the incentives, doesn't consider it. Right hand not knowing what the left hand is doing. That's Jesus' pimsel mark. My mother used to tell me, Blake, when you get to heaven and Jesus is showing you the things that, that you're rewarded for, you won't even remember them. That's true. You won't even remember them. Because obedience flows naturally out of faith. It really does flow unknowingly. It's not incentivized. It's not looking to be rewarded. It's not looking, it's not throwing lumber up up into heaven. It's not seeking to bolster your own reputation. That's God's plimsoll mark. And that's Faithful obedience what it looks like. So when we look at Abraham's life and what it teaches us about faithful obedience, it's this. Faithful obedience is immediate, unincentivized obedience into the uncertain. You want to encapsulate it here in chapter 11? Faithful obedience is immediate, unincentivized obedience into the uncertain. 
That's the kind of life we're called to live, brothers and sisters. And if you're sitting here today and you're thinking, I've got to do that more. If you're here and, and one of your mental reactions to what I just said is, I've got to be more like Abraham. You're missing the whole point. You're missing the gospel here. If you're thinking that, if your heart reaction is, I need to, you're missing the gospel. Yes, it's good to try to be obedient. Okay? It's good. That's good. God wants that. It's good to keep these things in mind as you go through life. But brothers and sisters, you can't do it. (laughs) Do you realize that? However much you want to write it on a piece of paper and put it on the visor of your car or on your mirror, you won't be able to do it. It's crushing. So much of scripture is meant to crush you. Do you realize that? It's actually put there as a weight on you. I don't know if you've had this experience, but I've had several experiences in my life where I've tried to get either a heavy box down from a, from a high uh, shelf or I've tried to take a, I don't know, a, a, a air conditioner out of a window that's high. And I get it kind of three-quarters of the way out and then you realize I'm in trouble, you know? I, this is way too heavy. What did Carrie put in this box, right? <laughs> and, you know, you start thinking, I'm going to be crushed by this box. That's the purpose of the law in the Bible, is to get you to that point where you go, holy mackerel, immediate? Un- totally unincentivized, left hand not knowing what the right hand is doing? Obedience to the uncertain? I can't do that. It's too heavy a box. And you're right. And what that should do, as Romans 4 and Galatians 3 tells us, is it should be a pedagogue, a teacher, to lead us to who? Christ. Who did? He did do it. Isn't that beautiful? It's to lead us to Christ. That was the purpose of his life, was to obey his Father in heaven. He obeyed immediately all circumstances. Immediately. Not for the reward for himself. You know what his incentive was? Us. You and me. He, he, that was who he had on his mind. I mean, if you, if you just look across the page, maybe, on your Bible to, to chapter 12, you see there that in the first two verses, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, that's talking about chapter 11, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy set before him, Who was the joy set before him? Us. He was doing it for us. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 
He lived a perfect, immediate, obedient life so that he would be an acceptable sacrifice to God for our sins. That, so that he could pay the debt that we can never pay. He died going into the uncertain and rose again by the power of God on the third day, conquering sin and death. I love what John Owen wrote in his book, the title of his book, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. That's true. He conquered death to give all who live an opportunity to put their trust in him, to put their trust in his life of perfect, immediate obedience into the uncertain so that we might be saved. And that's the promise of everyone who trusts in Christ. You are saved. And that actually is what the patriarchs looked forward to that is being talked about here in chapter 11. And that brings us to our second noticeable feature of Abraham's life in that his faith looked forward. Though we mentioned this a few weeks ago when we looked at the definition of faith in Hebrews chapter or verse 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It is exemplified here in Abraham and the patriarchs. And it's probably the, the main feature of of our text is looking forward. Faith looks forward. The faith, the promises of, of God are worth waiting for, are worth suffering for, are worth whatever it costs. And that's what we see in Abraham's life. He left a, a comfortable, safe, stable life in Ur for a dangerous, persecuted, nomadic life in Canaan. Richard Phillips writes, it's easy to imagine how many times Abraham looked out from the flaps of his tent at some city or settlement in Canaan and yearned for those comforts. We're not told that in scripture. But boy, that's provocative, isn't it? Perhaps that was a temptation for Abraham to look back longingly at his past. What? Here I am. Remember what it was like in Ur? What do you do when you're in a difficult time in your life? When circumstances are difficult? What do you, where do you look from your tent flap? Well, our flesh wants to look back to the good old days, right? That's one of the things that we do. We look back. But looking back longingly, scripture says, is dangerous. Looking back longingly is dangerous. I think that's what Jesus was teaching when he said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. I think that's what he was getting at. In other words, don't look back. You can certainly learn from the past, and scripture tells us to look back to learn from the past, or look back to remember God's faithfulness. But to look back longingly when you're in a discontented situation at life previously is dangerous. And one of those dangers we see is in, in verse 15. In verse 15, God's word says, if they, Abraham and the patriarchs, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity 
to return. If they had longed for the past, the temptation would have been to go back. Just go back to Ur. This is too hard. It's exactly what the purpose of this whole letter of Hebrews is, right? It's, it's telling a group of persecuted, very discontented and, and uh, fragile Jewish converts who are tempted because of persecution to leave the faith, to push on, go forward. They were thinking about going back to Orthodox Judaism, to renouncing Christ. And that is the danger we face when we put our hand to the plow and look back longingly. It creates a dangerous discontent. So we read over and over again here in our text that Abraham and the patriarchs gained confidence for the present by looking forward. If you have read Pilgrim's Progress and if you haven't read it, you should go out on Amazon, buy it, and read it. You need to read this book. Pilgrim's Progress is an allegory of the Christian life written by John Bunyan. And if you've read it, you know about halfway through the Pilgrim's journey, he comes to the House Beautiful. And it's a way station where he could rest on his journey. He's tired from all the difficulties that he's encountered thus far. And so before leaving, the the godly helpers that are in House Beautiful encourage Pilgrim to climb a local mountain and look forward. As Pilgrim reaches the top, he peers towards his destination, the delectable, delectable mountains. And there he sees for the first time the celestial city. It's far off in the distance, and there's a long way to go. Pilgrim has yet to do spiritual battle with Apollyon, the persecution of Vanity Fair, the journey through the valley of the shadow of death. Yet by looking ahead to the celestial city, Pilgrim is reinvigorated for his journey. That's what we read Abraham did, right? If you look at verse 10, it says Abraham was looking forward to a city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. A little further down, we read that he was looking forward to heaven. This life is not easy and circumstances can absolutely decimate you, brothers and sisters. Abraham's life was tough. But he looked forward to what God had promised again and again and again. And he gained strength from it. In fact, that's what he's tell- the text is telling us the patriarchs did in verses 20, 21, and 22. Isaac, by invoking future blessings on Jacob and Esau, was pointing them forward. Look forward, he was telling his, his two sons. At the end of the life of Jacob, leaning on his staff, he passed on the blessing, the future blessing, the promise, to his sons. He was pointing them forward. And Joseph, looking to the, to the future, when they would come out of Egypt from slavery, take my bones, because the, go, we're going to be going back to the promised land, and I want to go back with you. They were all looking forward to God's promises, even, that it says, when they died. 
verse 13, not having received the things promised, but greeted them from afar. Looking forward is the posture of the born-again Christian. Looking forward is the posture of the born-again Christian. So, I bring you back great encouragement from Namibia. Our missionary, Buddy Bond, has been there 13 years. His ministry is deep and wide and vibrant. And one of the reasons it's so like that is because Buddy looks forward all the time. I remember 13 years ago when he left a great job. A great job. And he sold everything, literally, at a garage sale and left for Namibia. Everybody, uh, you know, including me, was like, well, okay. A few years later, he married a Namibian woman, had children, has made a life there. As we learned, he eats all the local foods. He loves them all, including worms. He's totally integrated into the spiritual fabric of that country and certainly of the capital city. He has absolutely no plans to return. None. I spent 10 days with him and he is happy and content. And I asked him one time, I said, do you, do you miss anything about the U.S.? You know what his reply was? Really simple. Nope. And one of the reasons for that is he's looking forward. He, he has that posture. He's not looking back at what he lost, what he sold, what he doesn't have, the comforts, the ease of America. He's looking forward to that city as foundations and whose designer and builder is God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Spirit, use it as you will. Challenge us. Encourage us. Feed us. And nourish us through it. In Jesus' name, amen.